0: Welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi, my name is Alan Fassfeldt, and you're listening to the 14th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast after a long and sustained quiet spell. Now, I know how this looks a new podcast pumps out a bunch of episodes and then loses steam before eventually just going silent one day and vanishing. We've all seen it, we all know the signs, but don't worry, I've been very busy behind the scenes, lining up a whole stack of interesting people to interview, and you'll be able to share them all in the coming weeks. We've got some top-shelf astrophotographers coming up, a guy who suddenly got a bit famous by taking on the flat-earth crowd in a live interview on YouTube, and even one of my old astronomy lecturers from university days. Today's guest, though, is uh, maybe a bit less interesting. We'll be talking to me. My darling wife and occasional co-host grabbed a microphone over the weekend and sat me down to ask me all about myself, my website, my podcast, and just what I'm trying to do here.
1: All right. Um, how many years has Urban Astronomer been a thing?
0: It was launched uh, end of 2009, a uh, very late International Year of Astronomy project. Um, started the website, started creating, and it's been... It's had its ups and downs ever since. So that's what, eight years, I think, coming on eight years now. And
1: it started as as a website. Um, What's on this website? I mean, I know this. I'm just asking.
0: Um, Well, I think in the beginning, I was just trying to be a universe today. You know, Um, the site's full of information and news about space and astronomy, um, answering questions that people might have. um, Yeah, because everyone loves to be the expert right you've got the thing that you know all about and it's nice to to be the guy that everyone comes to to ask questions and the website was kind of just that you know it was it was putting myself on the internet uh through a website as it were
1: and um what sorts of questions did people ask uh i mean what are your favorites some of your favorites over the years
0: oh it was distressing how few actual questions came in uh they were all up on the website um i don't know what's some good ones um well, I'm, I'm, I remember
1: the one, um, the head exploding one. I just don't oh, remember the question. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that was the first really popular page on the whole website was um, somebody wanted to know, um, you know, in science fiction movies, um, and it's just, I suppose it's common knowledge that when you are out in space with, uh, without a spacesuit, um, you explode. Except if you look at other movies, you don't explode, you freeze solid with little ice crystals uh, visibly patterning across your skin and then you And then you this, shatter. Yeah, like I get the stricken expression on your face as you drift <laughs> off into you know. <laughs> um and so I, I I went and looked it up, I did my homework, I found some articles specifically addressing this question by I think it was a, well, I can't remember if it was a doctor or a physicist or whatever, but working for NASA. Uh And they were able to quote uh well, as a result, I was able to quote um people that this had actually happened to um what the experience was and 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 what the long term effects were so that was interesting
1: that's amazing. How many articles are there on the i mean i'm assuming it's an, it's not just questions it's also um
0: you know sure I don't know I've got no idea anymore um at one stage um it was about a thousand plus um, but that was many years ago. And I did a major site migration. And as a part of that, um, I trimmed a lot of the garbage articles. You know, there were, there were articles that were just blog posts, you know. Oh, for, yeah. Hi. Uh, sorry, there haven't been any updates this week. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but, but keep tuning in, you know, stuff like that. that that's, not, that's not worth keeping in your archive. That's, that's not uh, an article for the ages.
1: There are, I must say, from the, from the ones that are some of my favorites on the website – are the sort of evergreen questions mm. uh, about the moon and the planets and uh, you know just various you know what is a black hole and what is a nebula and that sort of thing um, but you've also got you've got the history of famous astronomers
0: oh yeah that's a bit of an embarrassment actually that was this big ambitious project that I came up with. I was going to write these long, detailed bios on these guys, and I think I—I I, I think I got two down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I think it was Aristarchus. Uh, he's the the chap who first uh, measured the diameter of the Earth, around uh, right about 2600 BC. Who um, people don't realise he was an African astronomer. You know, he was from Libya. Huh. Um, I mean, okay, he has a Greek name, and all the statues show with classically sort of in the classic greek statue style because it was part of the greek empire at the time. Yeah. Um but Ctesias Jim, yeah, mean, it was definitely african. Um and uh, th- yeah, he he moved to Egypt. Uh to, to uh, he was well he was the librarian at the the famous uh library of Alexandria and he was able to do simple experiments. I mean stuff that you could do yourself at home with uh, just just measuring shadows. Uh he was able to calculate um, the, the diameter of the earth and got it I think it was with, within just a few percent of the actual figure and the uncertainty comes more because we don't really understand the units he was using he said it was so many stadia around aha uh-huh. and
1: uh, so many Normans yeah here we uh, go yeah. whatever they were using <laughs> yes
0: I mean the stadia was the length of an, of a, a like a sports field an athletics ground but it wasn't standardized, so it was somewhere between 100 and 120 meters, or maybe 80 to oh, okay. somewhere in that okay. area. So we're not actually sure how, exactly how long it was, but within that range of uncertainty, it was still in, enormously accurate, considering that he didn't have access to you know space satellites or
1: yeah, he had a, a stick and a string. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And a calendar. And the other one?
0: Uh, I believe that that was Copernicus. Um, who is uh, gets a lot of credit for being the first guy to accept and popularise the idea that the Earth orbits the Sun and not the other way around?
1: I'm sure you did a did another guy, a, a more recent astronomer.
0: I did one or two uh, on living astronomers in South Africa.
1: No, no, no. I'm thinking of um, he he. Not Newton. No, no, no. I think it starts with an H. Sorry, I, I don't remember his name. Um, but he Harold,
0: Henkel uh, no. Herkel
1: Herschel. Herschel. There we go.
0: I don't. Th- do I? Don't, I don't think I did write that. Uh, I've talked a lot about him. Um,
1: I remember the story quite well. Um, he came to Cape Town, and then his wife joined him at at some point, and I think he may have lost.
0: A wife and some children at some other point. Well, there were three Herschels. Um, there was Herschel Sr. Um, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> William. <laughs> William Herschel. He was actually German. Um, and then his son. Uh, and, <clears throat> and then there was Carolyn Herschel, who was the, the third of the family, who worked with John um,
1: Oh, calculating and didn't she become like a when comet I, spotter in, in her own
0: right? Yeah, she she observed directly, um, and although a lot of her work was done sort of in the guise of assisting John, uh, she made a huge number of discoveries on her own right, and uh, and she's kind of forgotten these days. Although, okay, in the last few years there's been a great resurgence, uh, people trying to you know uh, recognize, identify women in astronomy um, and in science retroactively, in yeah, because yeah. these days it feels like such a modern thing. Um, well, no, it is such a modern thing uh, for women to be allowed to do these things to be accepted. But they were still out there doing it. You know, um, often they tended to just not get any credit for it.
1: That's one thing I have realized um, when people talk about women in STEM, or, you know, in the sciences in general. Mm-hmm. I get the impression astronomy um, was a little more open to this sort of thing. Uh, you mentioned a, a well-known astronomer who employed... Uh, this group of women to do all his calculations for him?
0: Uh, Pickering. Yes, yes, uh, yes, that guy. If I remember right, he was at the Harvard Observatory, um, and this was 19th century. Um, he, yeah, he'd, he'd gotten frustrated with um, all his uh, with his students, because, you know, typically science is built on the back of students, right? Of course. You of have course. the prof who has the great ideas, and then the students who Actually, do yeah. all the work, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh and he was he was very unimpressed with these, these these young, rich, intelligent lads who were coming along and spending all their time doing whatever it is that students did in the 19th century. I'm sure it wasn't getting drunk and, and, and hitting on girls. At the I'd day. almost
1: bet it was, but anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he um, threw a bit of a strop and announced that his, his cleaning lady could do a better job than these lazy, useless oafs. And then to prove his point, he did exactly that. He, he brought his maid in. I think she was his maid. And he taught her um, how to how to do the basic work because starting off at least it wasn't particularly difficult to work. It was just it was just time consuming and tedious and laborious, and it was something that could be taught easily. Although it still required a bit of a bit of brain power and uh, sharp eyes, it was basically looking at the photographs that they had taken of the stars and oh
1: yes, and identifying or counting them.
0: Yes, identifying them, uh, just measuring how bright they were, and and so building up a catalogue. So he um, he was so impressed with her work uh, that he started employing other women and eventually had this large team of women who, who worked for him at the observatory. They were rather unkindly referred to as Pickering's harem. Uh. Uh, <laughs> there's a very famous photograph of just all these women in these Victorian outfits standing on the steps of the observatory with Mr. Pickering looking all stern in the way of portraits of the time, you know, in the middle of them.
1: That's amazing.
0: And... uh it depends, you know, there there's mixed views about this. I mean, on the one hand he's seen as being this great empowering force, uh, demonstrating that women could easily do this work and there's no reason why they couldn't. Um while at the same time he was paying them significantly less than he would have been able to pay even uh even, even a boy. Yeah. Um and yeah, I suppose it's
1: yeah, a person's gotta view it from uh, through the passage of time, yeah, you know, from the perspective you know,
0: of, I think to have the kind of debates we have today in those dear in, the, in, in at that era, was, yeah. would be impossible. No one on earth, I think, would have sort of reasonably entertained the idea of, of paying the women the same as the men because, well, you know, obviously, right? And now, a 100 years later, we look back at this and we and we throw our hands in the air and say, This is appalling. Um, some of us do. Others deny that. Oh, yeah, that for sure. Yeah, company. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, okay, moving on. Mm. Um, at some point, uh, just operating the website and writing it morphed into actual speaking engagements. Um, when Around when did that start happening?
0: The first – I think the, the first speaking I did was at uh, – I volunteered myself for the 2010, I think it was, uh, s- uh, Symposium of the Astronomical Society of South Africa, which happened to be not so close from where I lived that year.
1: Oh, I, I think I remember you spoke about, I was the, talking website. about the website. I spoke the website, yeah. Actually, yes, you used it as a, a sort of a um, – to talk about astronomy online and astronomy education, was it, or something like that?
0: Um yeah, it was, it was yeah. Uh, I mean, I was using the website itself as a sort of case study for for how this can be done, um, and of course, I had the secret, um, hidden, very subtle, um, what do you call it, <laughs> agenda <laughs> uh, of of getting people to go to the website and and start loving it. And I think after that I started. Yeah, th- then I started getting emails from um, local conservancies. I think it was the Modderfontein Conservancy in Johannesburg. They asked me to just come and just come and talk about space and stars and things. Um, I
1: think Mensa also. You.
0: Yeah, th- uh, that came later. Uh, the local conservancy uh, in the area that we live. Uh, they asked me a few times to speak on light pollution.
1: Oh yes, the Crocodile River.
0: Yeah, the the Mensa talk I spoke about astrophotography um, because the, the local chapter of Mensa have a I think every two two weeks I think um, they have they, they they bring in experts on whatever interesting subject. So one week it might be a whiskey tasting guy, will come along and talk about whiskey for 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 forty five minutes, and then one time it was me, and and so on and so on, which was fun.
1: Yeah, that's well. Um, now you mentioned astrophotography. At some point, uh, the Urban Astronomer website got this new component, which was um, where you started talking about grinding your own mirror, mm. um, and then later, astrophotography in particular. At what point, and I, I know at some point you became the actual head of astrophotography at the South yeah. Africa, at, at Asa. Asa, yeah. Um How did that
0: evolve? Okay. Well, the telescope making is a was a separate side issue. Um, I flew down to Cape Town for the two thousand and ten uh, symposium, uh, where they had a workshop on astrophotography the day before. Uh, oh, and you happened to catch that? Yeah. Yes. Well, well, I, I Oh, scheduled you specifically it, yeah. wanted to? Okay. Um, and I mean, I didn't even own a camera. That t- well, I we had a little little Canon point and shoot camera. Um, so I thought well this will be interesting and I went and I I became very excited about it I started playing with image processing software and shortly afterwards bought a very cheap DSLR and I was posting my photographs online and very shortly afterwards I got a phone call I got a phone call from uh, one of the council members of ASA who said to me that they had a vacancy directing the Astrophot or the imaging section of ASA and um I seemed to be an enthusiastic young man and would I be interested. Ah so and and I suppose that and I said okay. And what's involved? <laughs> and they said, well I don't know, you just you just make sure that Do whatever it is you yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, ever since uh, I've been in that role, yeah.
1: And you've been uh I know you've been quite involved with um Scopex every year um running the actual astrophotography stand um how does that work what happens there Uh, do people submit photos and you judge them or yeah the the photos not the people
0: well i judge the people (laughs) 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 no um yeah they um i've sort of landed into that role as well they have their their astrophotography competition every year uh yeah, well, you bring your photos in. Um, they got to be appropriately labelled, you know, with technical information and identifying what the photograph is of. Um, and then the judges have a look and they award the prizes. And some years it's just been me. Um, I prefer it when I'm able to get someone to assist. Um, sometimes we bring up people from Cape Town, like, um, uh, senior members of ASA. Other times, so in fact, this year we've, we've managed to get a professional photographer to assist who. Uh, it was a great call because he doesn't like entering competitions.
1: Uh, ah, so he, he, he won't be. Uh, exactly, there's putting no himself conflict. there. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. Um, what's the most, like in your years now, as basically a professional amateur um, <laughs> <laughs> astronomer? I yeah. suppose a person could, you know, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, what, is, what is the sort of weirdest question? You've you've ever been asked. Um, Okay, apart from the head exploding. I saw one. uh, It has something to do with lightning. And I've noticed people sometimes ask you uh, sort of weather phenomena sorts of questions.
0: Yeah, uh, I've had a few phone calls from the press. Um, At some point, my name got onto the... Phone book at the newspaper in the town where I grew up, and uh, so about once a year I get this phone call. And they, they, yeah, they've asked me a few weather questions. Um, they'll ask about rainbows or they'll ask about interesting cloud formations. Yeah, for some reason, people seem to think that astronomers are the people to go to for weather questions instead of meteorologists. Um, and we, we know that meteorologists so exist, we see them, you know, the, the, the weather guy on, on the news, you know.
1: <laughs> you know, what's interesting though is, um Through, you know, over the years, you've obviously made yourself very accessible to people. Mm. And maybe that's the major issue in the fact that, you know, where do you find your local friendly neighborhood meteorologist? You know, I mean, you know they exist.
0: Um, Well, I know that in South Africa, at least, um, you've got your South African Weather Service, which are basically a government's department. Entity, Part of the... Um, Anyway. But
1: you obviously have a passion for science, then, if you're able to answer these questions. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, you generally know uh, quite a lot about rainbows and lightning and well, I mean, natural phenomena.
0: The thing is, I just I just paid attention, you know, in high school in science class. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have any huge deep knowledge, but it seems uh, I suppose with most people, it's once exams are passed, they forget about it. They don't care, and it was always at least. I mean, they did their best to make it boring, but you know, <laughs>
1: the, yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't fool that, you. Yeah. But I think one of the most commonly held misconceptions uh, is the idea that people are, that astronauts are still going to the moon, and I think a lot of people believe this. And uh, you you once mentioned to me um, how many actual missions there were, but I don't. If I if I understand it correctly. After Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and the um, other guy whose name people, yeah. <laughs> people always forget. Uh, was, there, was there a moon landing after that at all?
0: Well, there was Apollo 12 with, and the other guy. Uh, there was Apollo 13, which famously never made it to the moon. Yes, yes. Uh, then Apollo's 14, 15, 16 and 17.
1: And did, did they make it to the moon? They
0: all made it to the moon. The, the last ones even brought a car with. A uh, little moon buggy. Oh, it. and left it there. Yeah, like you, leave, you leave as much as possible behind because you, you you can't afford the weight.
1: Exactly because of the fuel. Mm. But and and what year was that? The last mission? Seventy two, like, I think. So for like three years.
0: Yeah, for three years we were putting people on other worlds, and then we just stopped. And then we stopped. Yeah.
1: Um, the International Space Station. Sorry, this I'm just asking out of interest. Now that I've. Mm. you know curiosity um it's obviously huge Mm. and it's obviously been built by several countries over many years yeah what do they do up there i mean i know every now and then you know astronomers go up there Mm. and then they live there for
0: a while and they come back down uh research mainly um well entirely uh some of the research is on the astronauts themselves trying to figure out what
1: happens to their bodies and that sort of thing. yeah
0: and why um, some of it, a lot of it, is is, is commercial. Uh, there'll be certain, for example, chemist or biology experiments. For example, um, uh, they want to know how stuff behaves in zero gravity, or there might be stuff that can only be done in zero gravity.
1: Ah, it's, and they actually do this.
0: Yeah. So private companies uh, developing developing a new product, for example, will need to, will need to have these experiments performed. And they will then pay a very large sum of money to have their uh, equipment sent up on the next rocket. And Uh, test it there. Yeah, and the astronauts run the experiments and it's all under strict uh, confidentiality because there's money involved. You know, if your competitors find out. Of course. Then they can beat you to the market and whatever else. Um,
1: I I know you just know about this sort of generally, but um, I'm assuming this is how they fund it,
0: the Um, whole thing. Or is it government-funded? It's mainly government funded. The, the running costs are, are enormous.
1: Okay. Okay. And then um, now sort of moving on in your timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point did the podcast start coming together in your head generally?
0: Wow. That's a long time. A uh, year and a half, two years maybe.
1: And can can you tell me more about the journey? I mean, I know it, obviously it hasn't been going
0: for a year or two. No, it took no. a while to get going i mean i had the idea that it was something i wanted to do and i st- started doing my homework to find out how can i host this thing i learned how to run uh you know what software to load onto the website itself to make it all work and then i kind of stalled because i didn't know what i was actually going to say and i didn't have uh decent equipment um eventually kind of got running when we began the now Look Here podcast. Yes, that was you and me um I bought uh, a set of u uh, s b uh headsets microphones and headphones um and we put out i believe it was about ten or eleven episodes i think um and learned a lot about the about the well uh, about the editing process uh but just just how to just how to turn a recording into an actual show that someone can download plus how to actually make the recordings in the first place, you know, how to know what to say, how not to say um all the time. Exactly. Although I noticed I'm still doing it. <laughs> um, and then that sort of slowed down a bit. Um, you know, we just, we were having trouble scheduling and finding time to both sit together and record. And yeah, it was, must have been around about this time last year, July, maybe August last year. We, um, uh, there was a call, international, Astronomical unions um, – oh, what are they called now? They are in uh, – the Office of Astronomy Development uh, put out a call for funding. Um, well, to fund, I suppose, um, for for yeah, well, submissions. Well, a call for funding means that you can uh, approach oh. them for funding. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, they, they had some money to spend and – and I made a proposal, and I got through to the second round, I believe, if I uh, if I recall the exact timeline. But um, in the end, I wasn't awarded funding, which was a bit of a blow because I would intended to use that to buy some proper recording equipment, decent microphones, because the headsets turned out to be
1: not very good. Yeah, yeah,
0: they they were very expensive and they were garbage. They 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 fell apart. They I've still got the pieces, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's equipment that I looked after. So. Yeah, I was, so I was planning to, to get decent equipment, to buy a dedicated computer, to do the processing, um, pay for transcription services and all that. And and uh, and I, at the end of the day, I didn't get the funding. Um, but you decided to go ahead. At- I was lucky enough to get a bit of a, a bonus uh, at my day job. And with that money, I just went and bought the, and bought the equipment myself, re, uh, revised the plans, yeah, so I revised the plan, scrapped the transcripts and all that, and just uh, bought the recording gear on the microphones, and then I launched it. And the first episode went out, I believe, end of February-ish. And, uh, yeah, we've been going ever since. Well, that was fun turns out that Catherine is actually an excellent interviewer and I really enjoyed being on the other side of the mic for a change. If you agree with me that she should be doing this all the time then let us know with a comment on the website or our Facebook page or just tweet me at you astronomer. or and and this is such a poorly disguised hint you could even leave a note on my Patreon page where you can also pledge your support for the podcast if you want to just putting it out there. Speaking of comments though uh, I got a bit of feedback on a recent episode and its associated article about picking fights with flat earthers. This is just one of several bits that I've done about dealing with weird myths and misconceptions and misinformation about how our universe works. I do tend to go on about it, I realize, but this whole anti-science thing is it's just such a shocking thing to me. The idea that people with all the benefits of a modern education and living in a world so full of such astonishingly engineered technology that nobody even notices it anymore that they could decide to regress back to older, more primitive ideas and actively try to sabotage their own lives in the process. We've got a nice modern name for it, anti-science. But it's been happening forever. Flat earthers were waging determined, tenacious campaigns against scientists that got quite vicious as far back as the 19th century, and probably before. Anyway, I've been processing this in the back of our mind for many years now. In fact, now think about it. You know, my very first interview was with the president of the South African Flat Earth Society way back in 1988, when I was only 11 years old. My English teacher had given us an assignment where we had to prepare a little speech for the class in which we would argue for something that we didn't quite believe in. That we didn't believe in. Now, looking back, it was quite a sophisticated exercise for a bunch of sixth graders. But I was quite excited by the idea, and I picked the flat earth as the silliest thing that I could come up with. I was... Starting to come up with some arguments, though, and when I complained to my dad about it, he said he happened to know who the president of the Flat Earth Society was. He picked up the phone book, dialed the number, and handed me the phone. And so I got to present probably the only arguments in the whole class that was backed up with actual journalism. So the guy, whose name I can't remember, and I suppose I'm glad about that, because I'm not actually out here to embarrass anyone, well, he was quite enthusiastic to help me. As soon as I told him what I was looking for, that I was looking for reasons why the Earth had to be flat, he immediately launched into what was probably a well practiced spiel. He had a whole bunch of proofs that he fired off at a rapid pace, and I'm only sorry that I don't remember them all now, But it, and it only took him a few minutes to give me everything that I needed. So I presented my arguments the next day to hoots of laughter from the other kids, and it was all a lot of fun. But the thing I realized is this. All of his arguments... Every single one of them were transparently ridiculous to a classroom of 30 kids aged between 10 and 12 years old. And it's not as if I was playing it up for laughs. I took the assignment seriously and presented the arguments with all the gravitas I could muster. If the Earth is really spinning at a thousand miles per hour, I asked, quoting his, his opening, uh, opening line, then why don't we all blow away on the wind? Why don't we see the clouds zipping past instead of sitting still in the sky? Well, a bunch of 11-year-old kids were able to answer that question, without hesitating. Anyway, the whole experience, it left me convinced that grown-ups who talked about a flat earth were all just enjoying an elaborate joke. Like when your dad pretends to be super angry about something and he pulls ridiculous faces and makes absurd threats and it's, and it's all a big laugh and it's, and it's for your amusement. It it never occurred to me that they might actually be serious. Even now, looking at the endless series of memes that modern flat-earthers send out on Twitter and Facebook with childish phrases clumsily overlaid on images of the earth, like a child would do, copying the worst examples of political cartoons, I I still struggle to, to really believe that this crap convinces anyone, but I know it does. They're out there, investing enormous amounts of time and energy creating YouTube videos and spending money to advertise their shoddy websites and even having hours-long meetings and conferences and discussions with like-minded thinkers. And, you know, I think that I actually do have some idea of what's going on there. I had this idea several years ago that, to the ordinary citizen, the only difference between science and magic is the lack of pointy hats and wands. I made the mistake of saying as much to an actual scientist once, and he was so appalled and offended that I never mentioned it again, until now, but the idea never really went away, and as I've thought about it, I've refined it a bit, and I've recently extended the idea, and I'm busy working on an essay about it, which will explain more carefully what I actually mean by all this, and, and how it leads to people becoming anti-vaxxers, or flat-earthers, or homeopaths, or other, other such... I'll be publishing it all on Mr. Urban Astronomer within the next week or so, and I I really hope you'll read it and let me know what you think. Because I'm pretty sure I'm onto something here, and I'm very proud of how clever I think I've been. And, well, I haven't seen anybody else saying these things that I'm planning to say. So, yeah, uh, follow the usual channels on Twitter or Facebook or just the website so that you'll see it as soon as it gets published, and send me that feedback. Meanwhile... Don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast um, and to get them to subscribe or leave a review and maybe even ask them to take a look at the Patreon page. Meanwhile, I'll be seeing you all for all those exciting guests coming up next week that I promised you earlier. So if you don't want to risk missing them, then you should probably go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or whatever your, whatever your usual podcatcher is or, your, or even just email. Yeah, there is an email subscribe button on the website for if you want to be all charmingly retro about it. Anyway, that's all we have for this week, so until next time, clear skies.